I am delighted to be with you this morning. My name is Mike Kuhn, and I had hoped my wife would be with me, but she's uh, recovering from an illness, so she couldn't be with me this morning. But it is a delight to be with you. Just uh, in brief, to tell you who I am, I work with the EPC's World Outreach, and part of World Outreach called I-10. Now, this is going to sound really sophisticated and amazing when I tell you what I-10 stands for. Does anybody know what I-10 stands for? Hmm. It stands for the International Theological Education Network. Does that, does that make you think I'm smart? Uh, we chose that name to try to impress people. But that's who I work with. So after uh, about 28 years of ministry in the Muslim world, in places like Morocco and Egypt and Beirut, Lebanon, um, we returned to the U.S. <clears throat> and so based in the U.S., I now travel to uh, various places in the world. I'll be in Sierra Leone in a couple of weeks, uh, often working in um, Muslim settings where the leaders of the church are former Muslims. And so helping them understand wonderful things like why God is three in one and why Christ is two, uh, two natures. So uh, that's my privilege and my honor and my joy. Now, you may wonder, well, what in the world has brought you to the Pacific Northwest? Because I live in Bellingham, Washington. And the answer is kids. So I have two kids in South Seattle, two daughters, and two grandchildren in South Seattle. So we get down this way every now and then. And I also have um, one daughter and five uh, grandsons up in British Columbia. So as you can see, Bellingham is parked right between the two. It's my joy to open the Word of God with you this morning. So let's turn to Matthew chapter 14. <clears throat> this is a story uh, you will have heard, I wager, uh, tens, scores, or maybe even hundreds of times. So it's going to be hard for you to hear it afresh today, I think. And it's hard for me, actually, to hear it afresh. I always hear it through certain lenses that I've heard it preached through. I've read devotionals about it. But let me encourage you to just... Ask the Lord for a new understanding of this passage and what God is saying to us about his Christ, about his beloved son in this passage. So this is Matthew 14, <clears throat> verses 22 to 33. I'll be reading from the ESV. So please give attention to the word of the Lord. <clears throat> Immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. But the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost! And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, Come. So Peter got out of the boat 
and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, O you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly you are the Son of God. So, Father, as we incline our minds and our hearts to this passage, we pray that your Spirit would indwell us, speaking to us, renewing us, shaping within us uh, the shape of your Son, conforming us to his image for his glory. Amen. Now, like you, I've heard this passage preached a lot, and almost every time um, the the thrust of the the, the preaching is that we are to keep our eyes focused on Jesus, right? That if we let our minds be taken over by the circumstances of our world and by the things that surround us, we will begin to sink. We'll be overwhelmed by those circumstances. And so the answer is to keep our eyes focused on Jesus. That's pretty good advice, isn't it? My problem is, sorry, but I don't know exactly what that means. I mean, for Peter, Jesus was there. Physically, he was walking on the water. So to keep his eyes focused on Jesus, it was very clear. What does it mean for me to keep mine focused on Jesus? And um, just to be clear, I'm not going to answer that question this morning. (laughs) But I am going to say to us that this passage has more to say than that. It has more to say. And I want us to try to get through that message we've all heard to what it is that's that's more in this passage. And so I've got three points for you this morning. Each one begins with more. And the first one is, this was more than a storm at sea. Okay, it was more than a storm at sea. Let me explain. If you look back at the first of Matthew 14... Uh, you can see that and his disciples have received some terrible news. And that news is that John the Baptist, who had been taken prisoner, has been killed. And he's not just been killed, he's been executed, he's been beheaded. And he's not just been beheaded, but the way it happened was uh, an uncanny absurdity, right? Because Herod the king... It was celebrating his birthday. The birthday boy decides he's going to call out the daughter of his wife, right, his stepdaughter. Now, John the Baptist had gone on record as saying that Herod should not even have this woman, Herodias, as his wife. It was not lawful. John, speaking truth to power, uh, gets caught in the wheels of that power, doesn't he? And the dancing girl comes out, and so wonderful is she, and her dancing prowess, so amazing, so impressive, that this king decides he's going to give her whatever she wants. Takes the vow right in front of his guest, anything she wants can be hers. And so returning to her mother, you know the story, she's coaxed, and she says, give me the, let it, let it grip you a little bit, give me the head of John the Baptist. 
here on a platter now. Now, Herod regretted it, but he had given his word, and he issues the command. And John the Baptist, the greatest prophet born among women, the one who had revived Israel, that all of Jerusalem was going out to him to be washed of their sins, the voice crying in the wilderness, his life is snuffed out. And his ministry is done away with at the whims of a dancing girl. Now there are some things that are so absurd in life that they literally just suck the wind right out of your lungs. I wonder if you've had such a thing happen. That there's no way to make sense of this. There's no easy answer. There's no platitude that will cover it up. There's no band-aid to make it better. It's just evil. And it can't be understood. I'm saying to you, that's what Jesus and his disciples were facing as they sought solitude. They sought to go out and be alone so they could cope with this thing that was happening. And I actually don't think it's sort of coincidental that they're on the sea when the sea begins its tumultuous uh, turns and waves and rising and falling because the sea in Scripture is often symbolic of chaos, of randomness, sometimes of God's judgment. You remember it was the Spirit of God hovering over the waters and the Word of God that spoke that brought order out of the chaos in creation. It was the judgment of God that brought the waters on the people of Noah's time. And so these waters represent chaos and God's judgment. If we had gone on in Psalm 43, we would have read David, when he feels estranged from God, how does he express it? He says, all your wake breakers and waves have swept over me. And so it is that the disciples are on this tumultuous sea. It's not just a storm. It actually speaks of the chaos of their world at that time. It reflects it. It tells it in literary image. So it wasn't just a storm at sea. It was more than that. But this was more than a miracle as well. That's the second more, right? It was more than a storm at sea. This is more than a miracle. Now, it was a miracle, wasn't it? It was an amazing miracle. Wouldn't you have loved to be there to see Jesus walking on the water to the boat? It it must have been stunning. I think I would have liked to be there, but then again, I think if I'm in that boat, when it's rocking and turning and tossing and struggling through half the night, maybe I wouldn't have liked to be there so much. There is a song, and I'll give away my age here, a song written by an old uh, Jesus freak named Larry Norman. Did anybody here ever listen to Larry Norman? Oh, I'm getting some hands. All the gray heads, yeah? We listened to Larry Norman. He was uh, uh, one of the hippies, you know, that came to Jesus on the West Coast back in the 70s, I guess, and and he wrote kind of radical songs, and he wrote one song called The Outlaw, and I couldn't help 
but bring that to mind as I was thinking about this passage. Larry Norman says in The Outlaw, some say he was a sorcerer, of course, speaking of Jesus. Some say he was a sorcerer, a man of mystery. He could walk upon the water. He could make a blind man see. That he conjured wine at weddings and did tricks with fish and bread. That he talked of being born again and raised people from the dead. Now, Norman was saying he was much more than a sorcerer, of course. And I'm saying that this miracle is more than a miracle. I want to suggest to you that what we see in this miracle is a miniature of Christ's work. It's a miniature, all right? Where do I get that? Well, first of all, where was Jesus? He had finally found the solitude that he had come to seek. And the passage makes it clear, and the ESV uh, states it clearly. It says he made the disciples get into the boat. And it's almost like that he's casting the disciples away. And he's also dismissing the crowds. So Jesus has finally gotten rid of all these people. And what does he do? He goes up to the mountain. And there he is, the text says, alone, praying. Jesus is finally alone with his Father. I don't think I fully grasp that. Because if it's true, I believe it is, I assume you believe it is, that Jesus is the eternal Son of God, eternally begotten of God, that there on that mountaintop he was restoring an intimate fellowship that existed through all eternity past. But, the text says, but the boat was very far out into the water. The disciples had been rowing all night. So what happens? You can see it, can't you? Jesus goes down from the mountain. Why? Because his disciples, his people, are caught in the chaotic waters of judgment. They're being thrown forwards and backwards, back and forwards. Jesus descends the mountain. He goes to his people to save. It's exactly what Paul said in Philippians, isn't it? That he who was equal with God, he didn't regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. He left his father's side. He came to his own people, being found in fashion as a man. He humbled himself. He became obedient even to death on the cross. So this is a miniature of Jesus' saving work. Can you see it? There are two things, two um, explicit statements right in the text that I think just bring this out so powerfully. The first one is Jesus' statement himself. You know, he walks to the disciples. I love this, don't you? They think they're seeing a ghost. Can't you imagine it on the in the spray of the water and the waves going up and down and it's dark and they think they're seeing a ghost. And Jesus says to them, literally, take courage. Be courageous. And then the next phrase in our text, it's, it is I. <clears throat> but in the Greek, it's a pronoun and the verb to be. It's I am. 
I am. Now that should send your mind and my mind, and I think it probably sent the disciples' minds right back to the revelation of the name of the unspeakable one of Israel, the eternal one of Israel, Yahweh in Exodus 3. When God declares his name to be, I am. You tell Pharaoh that I am that I am sent you. So this to me says, this is more This is more than just a miracle. Jesus is revealing himself to his disciples. He's revealing who he is. And maybe for that reason, when they arrive at their destination, they worship him and they say, truly you are the Son of God. So that's the first statement. But then there's a second statement. And this one is uttered by Peter. And and again, I love it. The Bible always economizes words, right? It it always uses words sparingly, but those words are so penetrating, so powerful. So Peter, as we know, he's begun to, the text says, see the wind around him. I assume he's not seeing the wind, but the effects of the wind. And he begins to sink. He begins to sink. Now, I'd like you just in honor of this text, and just to enter into this story, just maybe think of yourselves in that situation for a moment. You're going down, and it's cold, and you're feeling the spray of the water, and as you begin to sink, the salt water goes into your mouth and your nose, and you're beginning to choke, Can you see it? And at that instant, Peter utters these two words. Well, three, I suppose. Lord, save me. Save me. (laughs) And the text says that Jesus extended his hand like one who's standing on something as solid as what I'm standing on right now. He lifts Peter out of the water. Of course, saying to him, Oh, you of you little faith, why did you doubt? It's an amazing story of salvation, isn't it? That Peter, who took the greatest risk, who put himself in the most vulnerable place. You see, there were the crowds who were dismissed still on the banks of the sea. There were the disciples who were still on the boat. Peter put himself at the place of greatest risk, and he went down as a result. He went down. But he was actually the most secure of them all. Because he was in the presence of the Lord. He was in his presence. Lord, save me. And Jesus lifts him to the surface of the water. So this was more than just a storm at sea, right? And this was more than just a miracle. It's actually a miniature of all Jesus has come to accomplish and to do. But I want to suggest to you that this is more than Peter. This is more than Peter. Now, to me, I love Peter. Peter's become my constant companion. Uh, And this is one of the most delightful scenes in Peter's life, I think. Again, put yourself in the scene. The disciples think they're seeing a ghost. And they've been rowing all night. It's the the fourth watch of the night. So it's between 3 and 6 a.m. 
Okay? So they're tired. They're exhausted. They're depleted. They may be hopeless by now. I think their lives are in danger just because of the ferocity of the winds and the storms that come down on the Sea of Galilee. And what would we do if we were in that boat? Well, I would kind of sink back onto my seat and my shoulders would drop and I would take a breath and I'd say, thank God, it's Jesus. Maybe now we can get out of this mess. Is that what you would do or is it just me? So it helps us see a little bit the irony and the amazing man this Peter was. Because what does he do? <laughs> he says, he says, Lord, if it's you, command me to come on the water. I'm like, what? What? I mean, Peter, you're naive on the one hand. You're, you have this idealism, Peter. You, you think you can do this, Peter. And actually, that's one of the aspects of Peter I want us to see. He had this sort of exuberance, this naive exuberance, that he actually thought a disciple was supposed to do what the master does. Can you imagine? Isn't that strange? That Christ's people are supposed to be as Christ in the world. I mean, that's, that's funny, isn't it? And quite true as well, isn't it? So this naive exuberance, this, uh, this sort of idealism of Peter is one side of his personality I'd like you to get. And you know, you need to get that. And I do too. It's not just you. I need to get it. Hasn't Jesus left us a commission to go into all the world and make disciples of all nations? I've been told that you have all the world right here in Kent. You do, don't you? Do we, and I share this with all humility as a brother in Christ, because sometimes when I'm sharing the gospel with people out there, I actually wonder, what does the gospel offer? You know, people are so smart. They've lived through so much. They've, through, through the internet, they can get exposed to any idea or any concept or any uh, ism they want to be exposed to. It's right at the tip of their fingers. And I just wonder if the story of a Jewish carpenter crucified some 2,000 years ago can still grip people. And I want to tell you today, if you've lost your idealism, if you've lost your, uh, your exuberance for your faith, and I'm with you, I'm not preaching at you, I'm preaching to myself, I'm telling myself this, that if we've lost our exuberance for this faith, we can regain it right here. That this is the faith that saves the world. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is the story and the event that reconciles human beings to God. There is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. So regain that exuberance. Get it. Whatever he's calling you to. Say, can I do this? Lord, will you let me do it? And when you hear him say, come, get out of that boat and go.
move. Your church is facing some challenges. Don't see it as defeat. Don't see it as, well, we'll see, you know, if the new guy is going to be good and, you know, if the music stays as good as it was today, maybe we'll stay here. Don't have that attitude. Be all in. Peter was all in. He had a heart to follow Jesus. I love him. But there's another side of Peter. And I want you to get this. And that is, obviously, he saw the wind around him and he saw the waves and he began to sink. So Peter, apart from being this idealist, enthusiastic, exuberant disciple, he's also a sinking, saved man. You hear me? He's a sinking, saved man. And as I study the life of Peter, I realize that Peter becomes, in the words of Henry Nouwen, some of you perhaps will have read Henry Nouwen, he becomes a wounded healer. Peter doesn't minister through his perfection, through his goodness, through his greatness, through his uh, giftedness so much as he ministers through his brokenness. He was the one who denied Jesus. He was the one who said to Jesus, far be it from you, Lord, just two chapters away in Matthew. Peter was a sinking, saved man. And now when you look over the people who follow in the train of Peter today, follow Jesus, you see a church, don't you, that in many ways reflects Peter. We're not so beautiful, are we? We're not so well put together. We're not so astute, so clever, so powerful, so rich anymore. We are the sinking, saved people of Jesus. We are the sinking, saved disciples. So I think Peter suggests to us that we don't just minister out of our fullness, that, that spiritual growth, spiritual formation is not just getting it all put together right so it fits snugly like a jigsaw puzzle, is it? Spiritual growth is realizing how far I have to go. It's failing when I step out of the boat. And I can say to you with all candor and all objectivity, that my ministry for 28 years in the Muslim world was perennially two steps forward and one or two back. It was a saga of failures with a few successes, <laughs> you know, sprinkled in. But I want to suggest to you that we don't serve Christ out of our perfection. We serve Christ out of our integrity and our honesty, and our truth. We don't tell people, come to Jesus so you can get it all put together and life will be successful for you. That's not the message. The message is, come to Jesus because you're sinking, because he's the one who transcends the waves and the waters. He's the one who will keep you. So the point is not of this passage, again, going back to what we may have heard in the past, the point is not, don't be a little faith like Peter, right? That's what we've heard. That's what I've heard, at least. Maybe you haven't. 
I've heard that all my life. Don't be a little faith. Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. I want to suggest to you the point is you are. (laughs) You are a little faith. And I am a little faith. That's what we all are because we are the disciples of Jesus. We are little faith. But when we get to that destination, we're going to get out of the boat and we're going to bow and we're going to worship Jesus. And we're going to say, truly, you are the Son of God. Yes, I am a little faith. But you are the Son of God. So brothers and sisters, this is more than a storm at sea. This reflects the absurdity of life that Jesus was living and that you and I live every day. And this was more than a miracle. This was a miniature of Jesus' work and ministry. And this is more than Peter. This is about him as a representative of the disciples and of us. It's about us. Will you pray with me? Father, who could have who could have dreamed up such a great salvation? That the man of God would come, the eternal Son of God who, as a man, should have been vulnerable to the waves, but as God, he was not vulnerable to those waves. He walked on them, and he was able to save Peter and is able to save us to the uttermost. So we bless you, O Lord our God, and worship you. We acknowledge that you are the one who has sent your Redeemer, your Son, into the world. And we call out with Peter, Lord, save us. Save us. In Jesus' name. Amen.